This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Last week's program, Facing the Harsh Realities of Now, with David Wasdell, set records for radio and listeners on SoundCloud. If you missed it, don't. David Wasdell makes his case that we are already committed to at least 6 degrees C of global warming, plus dozens of meters higher seas. Grab it from my website at ecoshock.org, or listen at soundcloud.com slash radioecoshock. This week, I've got a broad mix for you. Courtney White says we can capture carbon back into the soil, even if only 2% of the population act on it. We'll talk new science with Justin Mankin, how disappearing snow cover will impact people around the world. We wrap with octogenarian activist and author Peter Seidel, saying, yes, we do still have time. Before we get to our guests, dozens of listeners wrote in saying they were dismayed by the damning climate revelations by David Wasdell. While I agree with David that our true situation has been downplayed by governments, by media, and misplaced scientific caution, I also try to keep balance. You may want to consider three more ideas. First, the very high temperatures and sea levels David describes would likely only be attained in a few hundred years from now. That might give us time to develop ways and technologies to drastically reduce greenhouse gases. We might manage to cut greenhouse gas levels, say, to 280 parts per million, as was the case in pre-industrial days. If we do, some glaciers would still melt, because once they start, they're hard to stop. So we would still get sea level rise. The oceans would continue to give off residual heat for a long time. However, temperatures could start to decline decade by decade. By then, of course, the world and all living creatures would be greatly changed, I think. Second, In the coming week or two, I hope to present some other points of view and possible reasons to hope. You'll hear some of those voices in this program. Third, keep in mind that some scientists, including climate scientists, disagree with David's conclusions. Wise as he is, David is not officially a climate scientist. His high-sensitivity figures can be disputed. I'm still looking into that. But yes, I found Wasdell's interview rather crushing. I'm still mulling it over, as we all must. Meanwhile, thank you for joining us, and on with the show. You know carbon is already too high in the atmosphere for our own climate safety. And perhaps you've heard the biggest and best solution is to put carbon back in the soil. But what are we supposed to do? Go shovel carbon into the lawn after work? Our next guest says organic carbon capture is maybe not a job for most of us, although we can help. In June 2014, I asked author and activist Courtney White about his book, Soil, Grass, and Hope. Now he's back with a collection of inspiring stories which point to fundamental answers. It's called 2% Solutions for the Planet. From Santa Fe, New Mexico, Courtney White. Welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Thanks, Alex. I'm very happy to be here. Just before we get to a whole slew of ideas for saving a living planet, 
How can you say just two percent of the population may be the key climate solvers? Well, the book covers a number of practices that involve agriculture, restora- ecological restoration, and things like that. And the two percent of the American population that could be the workforce for that is largely farmers and ranchers. And I think most folks don't realize that. Most of the food in this country is produced by just a tiny fraction of our population. So that that was the idea behind that that part of the two percent. Yeah, it used to be about fifty percent way back in the day. We're you know farming and on the land. I wonder, wouldn't that number have to go up if we stop using so much fossil fuels and machinery? Oh yeah, and if we do. A lot, of, a lot of the things that are in the book, uh, folks who are not farmers and ranchers can help out as well. Uh, we have lots of ecological restoration that can be done. There are lots of jobs out there potentially for uh, those kinds of works, anything uh, renewable energy, as we all know about. I mean, there's the potential for a lot of activity, a lot of jobs and paychecks kind of related to uh, this idea of 2% solutions. It's not just, it's not just about food. But I think the rest of us could be still carbon grabbers if we demanded carbon capture from the food we buy. I mean, wouldn't it be great, Courtney, to see labels saying how much greenhouse gas was either added or subtracted by the product you're about to buy? Yeah, and that's actually a very important part of the the puzzle here. And I know folks are are working on this. Um, There's some complications about how to quantify and measure soil carbon, but they're figuring that out. And and we know what the practices are that, that do this work. So when we can kind of connect those dots, uh, you'll see you'll start to see some kind of labeling certification type process to let the consumer, uh, you know, the eater or the energy user, know what the farmer ranch uh, is doing in terms of carbon cap- capture and sequestration in soils. And what do you think of Alan Savory's claims of returning carbon to the soil by raising meat animals differently? Well, yeah. So I have a chapter. I have a, a couple profiles in the book that look at ranching and cattle and the regenerative agriculture kind of through the, the lens of uh, grazing practices. And, uh, you know, we're, we've, we've known Alan for many years. Uh, a lot of the ranches we work with use some variation on the, on the principles that he, he thought of first way back when. And this is the idea to graze domesticated animals in, in patterns or behavior that mimic nature, the way that nature wants grazing animals to move and herd and bunch up and move along. And, uh, and there's an old saying in organic agriculture that nature never farms without animals, which is, I, I think, a really great way of looking at this. So in nature, there are herbivores grazing and going. So they graze and they go. That's bison, uh, antelope, pronghorn, even rabbits and, you know, everything. Um, so uh, Alan Savory came up with the very smart insight that if we patterned domesticated herbivores, cows in this case, uh, sheep or goats, on uh, patterns of behavior that mimic nature, graze and go, this will be good for the land, good for grass, good for plant vigor, roots going down, carbon being sequestered. Uh, and over 40 years, uh, uh, he and the ranchers who use a lot of his ideas have demonstrated these systems work. And I've seen that firsthand. So fundamentally, we can store carbon in soils by uh, getting grass, rangelands, uh, grasslands, healthier, more vigorous, with deeper roots, uh, and then a lot of carbon through photosynthesis goes down through those grass plants and into the soil. So he's, that's a long answer to your question, which is that he's right. (laughs) 
Well, one of the concerns I have is how long does carbon stay in grassland soil? Is it a good long-term solution or is it a fast, shorter-term fix? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. And it's a just a little bit complicated. If you, if you dug a hole into a, a lawn or a grasslands, right at the very top of the, where the grass plants are, there's a lot of biological activity, a lot of microbes and nematodes and all that kind of stuff. And the, the carbon cycle at that point is very active. So a lot of carbon is going out of plants into that layer. But microbes digest carbon and they burp CO2. Uh, it's res- res- called respiration. So that cycle is quick, and you can get a lot of CO2 coming out of microbes as, that pro- as, as a consequence. But farther down the profile, the deeper the hole that you dug and farther down you go, there's less microbial activity. So if you can get plants to, uh, to put roots down and then the carbon comes out of the roots into the soil, it's kind of a complicated process, that storage is much longer term. In fact, the farther down that profile you go, you can get hundreds of years of storage as long as we don't disturb that soil, as long as it's not plowed, for example, turned over. So the, so there's not a lot of carbon storage in the, in the top layer, but farther down there's a, potentially a lot of storage for long periods of time. And that's, and that's our chore is to get that carbon down that plant by making the plant happy, right? So it's got water, it's got sunlight, it's got good soils, so it grows. And as it grows, it puts deeper roots down past that active layer at the top. So, it's yeah, it's a little complicated, but it's... Uh, uh, the, the bottom line is let's have happy, healthy, green plants doing our carbon sequestration for us. Well, you went way beyond ranching when you got this new book out and you write about edible forests, for example, and aquaponics. It got me wondering, did you go out and find people who are actually doing this successfully? Uh, yeah, I mean, and some of the stories I knew, some of the stories I, I heard uh, as I traveled about, some of the stories I researched, having read about them in other contexts. And, uh, and for your listeners, the book the book looks at 50 different profiles, or 50 different ways of producing food or water regeneratively. So they all have a kind of a climate connection, but they do they do it in lots of different ways. So there's a section on farming, a section on ranching, there's a section in the middle on technology, meaning approach appropriate technology for this, and there's a section on ecological restoration, and then finally on wildness, on on wild animals, because I'm a conservationist by background, and I don't want to leave wild animals out of this. It can't be about agriculture all the time. So I knew some of those stories, some I'd heard about. I had to go sit down and research, like dung beetles. I'd heard about dung beetles, that the power of the dung beetle in ecosystems, but until I sat down and did a lot of research uh, to, uh, about dung beetles, I, I, didn't, I didn't know the details. What is FarmHack, and could our listeners get involved? Oh, yeah, absolutely. FarmHack was started by a group of farmers in, in New Hampshire, uh, led by Doran Cox, who's a farmer near Lee, New Hampshire. And uh, Doran is a very interesting... He's in, he's in Grass Soil Hope, which is the carbon book that I wrote, he left the farm, he went into software, into, into tech, learned all about that, came back to the farm uh, and decided that he needed, that they wanted to create a forum, an online forum for new ranchers and farmers to talk to each other. Uh, it's kind of a virtual cafe. Uh, they call it Farm Hack. Um, 
and hacking being a you know a common term in uh, the soft, software universe. And the idea is that it's a it's a forum, so folks can kind of, kind of log on, uh, ask questions. And he was trying to uh, help young farmers not. Uh, not have to reinvent the wheel every time when they start uh, farming, but also um, any farmer that's got a question and they and they have a, there's a face-to-face part of this. They have workshops, they meet up and do things, but it's a way of sharing. It's open source, the whole kind of open source commons idea. Let's share information. Let's don't make it pro- proprietary. And so anybody who's, who's listening is interested can certainly log on. Uh, go to farmhack.net, I think it is, and uh, you, you got to create an account and go. On but it's uh, it, it's it's again it's the, the, the wonderful thing about the internet is that you know it's it's an open book so to speak for anybody who wants to participate and this is a good example of how new technology serves old technology so this, in this case organic farming meets the internet and tell us just about a couple of climate friendly or planet friendly solutions you found in other countries yeah you bet one for example that I mentioned in uh, Grass Royal Hope was this, this uh, research project in France done by some French scientists where they put solar panels above farm fields. And what they're trying to do is, and Europe has a lot of space issues. You know, not, not, they need to be very efficient about how they produce food and energy. In this case, the scientists said, let's produce renewable energy and healthy food from the same plot of land. And so they put these solar panels above these farm fields and then did all the calculations to make sure that they could maximize energy production while producing healthy food. And there's a, that's a very good example of how new technology can meet old technology and it shades the plants for on hot days and all those kinds of things. And I thought, what a cool idea. <laughs> and that's, uh, so that's an example from France. Um, there's a lot going on in Australia. Uh, I talk about pasture cropping, which is a way of of, yeah, of growing a annual crop in a perennial pasture, like oats in a in a grassland, which comes from Australia. Uh, another farmer down there puts his uh, cattle and his sheep together into one unit. Usually, they're kept apart. Sheep and cows kept apart. Uh, in this case, uh, he put them together. He likes the way they graze together. Uh, their in- impact, he calls it a flurd, a, a herd and a flock together called a flurd. And, and this is very unusual. <laughs> not many not many farmers or ranchers are willing to combine sheep and cattle together. So those are those are uh, three examples from overseas. Uh, and I just, picked, I just picked 50, and there's a lot more out there, uh, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of innovation, which is, I think, very exciting. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest from the Kivira Coalition, Courtney White. Courtney, what does Kivira mean? So uh, Kivira is an old Spanish colonial word to describe unknown territory. So I I live in New Mexico, and um, when the Spanish uh, came exploring way back when, uh, Kivira was a word that they wrote on the map. So it just meant uh, unknown territory over the hill. And when when I started Kivira... Uh, with a rancher and another conservationist uh, trying to find common ground between ranchers and environmentalists. We felt like we were heading off into this unknown territory, so we decided to use Kivira. It doesn't really mean anything. It's just a name the Spanish wrote on their maps for uh, land beyond the horizon. It's a beautiful word. I'm going to use it 
So now, your title, 2% Solutions, it has two other meanings. First of all, talk to us about the 2% of carbon that needs to go back to the soil. Right, yeah. So if anybody who's listening is a gardener, uh, you know that the soil in your garden, that dark, rich soil that, that is productive and healthy, most of that's carbon, a lot of it's carbon, uh, the, you know, the element, uh, C, and and it doesn't need a lot of carbon. So a lot of uh, land has you know two percent, three percent, four percent, five percent carbon is uh, in the soils. So the two percent solution here is if we could double the soil carbon from two percent to four percent, or just add two percent to the soil, all of these benefits flow. So it's, uh, it holds more water. Plants are more productive. And that kind of stuff. For just a little bit of carbon, you get all of this benefit done by 2% of the population, which is farmers and ranchers, for only 2% of the GDP. And that's just a number I grabbed because the point is that uh, these these practices described in the book are very cheap, uh, by and large. It, it doesn't require a lot of money. So for a little bit of money, for a little bit of carbon done by a few people, you can have tremendous benefits for climate, for food, for water, for jobs, all kind of wrapped up uh, in this regenerative agriculture that is going on right now. Okay, let's say a country decides as national policy to develop carbon-friendly agriculture. There's going to be some economic dislocation as current producers perhaps lose share and, and new ways of farming are brought up to scale. How can we pay for that and how much would it cost? Yeah, those are, those are good questions. Um, we have an we have a, a industrial food system that uh, is, uh, depletes carbon, doesn't add carbon. Uh, so getting farmers and ranchers paid for incre- increasing or storing more carbon would, would require kind of a kind of a, re- a rethinking of our, our economic system. I'm not sure that it would displace uh, many farmers and ranchers. These these not uh, folks that I know. So if we can get them to change their practices to regenerative instead of instead of degenerative agriculture, the question is how do you, how do you pay them? Uh, they would get. Um, a benefit uh, from productivity, uh, you know, on their land. But uh, ultimately, we're going to have to figure out some sort of carbon payment system. It'd be nice to have it t- uh, linked to a carbon tax, meaning that we tax uh, carbon that we burn. Uh, that pool of money, which would help us reduce emissions, that amount of money could be available for farmers and ranchers and other folks to to increase carbon in soils. So there's a nice link there. Create a pot of money, uh, spend it uh, to pay. Uh, ranchers and farmers to to do more. It's not hard to measure. Uh, so I, I I fantasize someday that we have a system that would would pay folks. You could measure it, double the soil carbon. You get paid for it somehow. Um, some dislocation. Well, more dislocation in mentally uh, in our paradigms how we look at the world than anything else. Uh, we'd have to probably do away with feedlots and all that terrible stuff. But that's okay <laughs> in the long run. Um, so the book, the point of the book is that these practices exist. Uh, they've been out there for a while. They've been beta tested. They're practical. They're profitable. We don't have to invent anything. We don't have to wait for new technology. It's all ready. But as you as you say, we need to figure out how to pay the landowner and the manager to do this work. Of course, you've mentioned the awful word tax, and uh, the conservatives will object to subsidizing carbon capture and agriculture, but isn't every major food-producing country already pouring vast amounts into agricultural subsidies? Oh, yeah, and yeah, absolutely. And so, I, you know, the tax question, you know, 
Yeah, I understand. I mean, nobody wants their taxes raised. Uh, things are things cost enough as it is, but we have a system that's uh, taking us in a dangerous direction and climate and carbon pollution. And at some point, we have to figure this out. And I don't know if tax is the right word or if you do it through credits or or what. But we have to figure out a way to to get that carbon economy going. And to say that we can't raise taxes, well. I understand, but uh, then where does that money come from, at least initially, until we start paying for more stuff? So that, you know, that's beyond my pay grade, <laughs> you know, in terms of how to make this work uh, at the, kind of the tax policy level. But uh, I just know that the practices are there, they've been vetted, they exist, uh, they produce all these benefits food, water, healthy animals, health space protection. Uh, it's a win, 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 win all the way down the line. If uh, it means that we pay more, either through the cost of services, the food, or through a tax thing. Uh, and it seems to me at this point, uh, we got to bite that bullet in order to get the world that we want. Well, we might save the $60 billion we're going to have to pay every time New York gets hit by yet another storm and rising seas. So look, in your book, you have a great story about a farmer who became dejected about his role in harming the planet. Just tell us briefly about that, would you? Yeah, you bet. His name is John Gosney. He, he lives in Oklahoma. Uh, I went out there to see uh, a very innovative model of food distribution called the Oklahoma Food Cooperative, and it's an internet-based uh, way to buy food uh, across Oklahoma, and this is a challenge for farmers and ranchers that are, are re- remote. How do they get to markets? And it was a very cool, cool way of kind of linking eaters to pr- producers. But I, he was part of the tour, and I went to his ranch, and he told this amazing story. Uh, he'd been a chemical farmer, meaning he'd farmed, um, raised his cattle and done his sheep with lots of pesticides and chemicals and things. And he, was, wasn't, he didn't feel well. He knew, that he knew it was bad for the land. And he frankly had just gotten depressed. And he told the group that, that uh, his life changed entirely when, he, when a neighbor who, who wanted to retire asked him to take over their organic wheat farm. And he had not thought about this. And he was resistant. And he said, okay. And he went and he studied it and realized it was a good idea. So he converted his farm to organic, which means they got rid of all the chemicals. He felt better physically, and, and as, he, as he told the, the group I was with, um, he felt like he was doing God's work now after all this time. And he was a you know farmer to the bone, and he you know he loves the land, but he wanted wants it to be healthy, not uh, depleting. And that's what happened to him. He, he got excited again. Uh, through the or, uh, converting to an organic farm, and his depression went away, and he had him motivated again, and he really felt like he was a new person. And it was a very moving story that I've heard other farmers and ranchers explain, like get off pesticides, get on to healthy practices, good for people and land. They they feel better. It's like getting off heroin almost. <laughs> yeah, you know. And, of course, now they have a lot of science behind all this stuff, meaning that they know what these pesticides are doing to us. And uh, from kids and embryos on up to adults, uh, this stuff is toxic, and it's to- toxic on a lot of levels. And uh, now, you know, if finally we're seeing a lot of the kind of research come out and say, even in small amounts, this stuff. 
So then this stuff goes into the food, and if you eat industrial wheat, it goes into you. There's an old saying, if it's in the feed, it's in the food, um, <laughs> meaning it's in you. Uh, so your listeners, I mean, a way to try to support all this is to ask careful questions about what you eat, or where is it from, what's in it. Uh, can, could you eat from a farm or a ranch that is carbon-friendly, um, but not just organic, but is it doing you know energy things, uh, carbon things? Uh, there's there's not a lot out there. There's more than there used to be, but there's more on the way. Can you talk to us about any recent conferences or organizations that inspire you? Well, uh, yes, and what's sort of amazing about the last uh, three, four, five years is that there's a, a lot more conferences, a lot more ways to go and learn about this. Um, I don't I don't go uh, back east a lot. There's a lot of conferences out here. There was a conference in California just in September called Soil, Not Oil. It drew a lot of people. Again, the idea that we're, let's think about soil, let's, let's get off oil. Uh, there's an annual Bioneers conference in San Francisco in October. It's, it's in its 26th year. It's a great place to go uh, learn about these alternatives. There's uh, lots of ecological uh, farming conferences. There's uh, one in February called Moses in Wisconsin. I know there's a lot of stuff back east. Uh, Stone Barnes uh, in New York has a, a big conference. Uh, I think if you just, if listeners are interested, just uh, Google Ecological Agriculture Conference and see what comes up. As we wrap up, is there anything I've missed or a final message you would like to leave, particularly with our city listeners? So there's two messages. One, why I wrote the book is I want folks to to feel like there's an alternative to our current food and energy systems. Uh, you know, we, we got the, the, the industry is controlled by big the big boys, the big dogs. Uh, uh, that don't want us to know that, that organic and regenerative agriculture uh, can answer our problems. Uh, this was a way of kind of showing uh, that we can. And number two is a antidote to despair. Uh, there are big problems out there. We we tend to get gloomy about, um, about our prospects. Uh, I wanted folks to know that there are things on the ground that can be done right now. Uh, uh, and if listeners who live in the city. I would encourage them just to, to seek them out. I mean, there's a story about a, a, a rooftop farm in Brooklyn uh, and uh, energy and watershed stuff. And these things can happen almost anywhere uh, around you. Um, just kind of, kind of dig a little bit and see where you can participate. We've been talking with Courtney White. He dropped out of the Sierra Club as a conflict industry to found the nonprofit Kivira Coalition which is dedicated to bringing together many players for planetary solutions. You can find out more at kiviracoalition.org, and that is spelled Q-U-I-V-I-R-A. I'll also put links to Courtney's new book, 2% Solutions for the Planet, in my show blog at ecoshock.info. The subtitle is 50 Low-Cost, Low-Tech, Nature-Based Practices for Combating Hunger, Drought, and Climate Change. Courtney, thank you so much for joining us again on Radio Ecoshock. I really appreciate it, Alex, and, and thank you so much. I'm Alex Smith reporting. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock, beaming the real eco-truth out to the world. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening in. Now it's time to talk with a leading climate scientist. 
Last summer, the river in my little valley displayed its bottom for the first time. No one living can remember seeing it, and it wasn't really a lack of rain. It was the thin covering of snow in the mountain headwaters. On a warming planet, it makes sense we'll get less snow, but few of us have really worked out what that could mean around the world. A multinational team of crack scientists just released the paper, The Potential for Snow to Supply Human Water Demand in the Present and Future. It's not looking good. From the Columbia University Earth Institute and affiliated with NASA, we have Dr. Justin Mankin on the line. Justin, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, thanks for having me. As you can tell, Justin, I have a vested interest in getting enough snow, and that's a strange concern for a Canadian, let me tell you. What happened to the snowpack in the mountains of California this past year? This past year in California, uh, we saw record near record lows in, in Sierra Nevada snowpack. There are lots of facts and figures that get thrown around about, about the actual amount of California's water availability that originates with Sierra snowpack. We know enough to know that it's a large fraction of California's water demand by such snowpack. And we know that the transition in places like California from being a snow-dominated regime up in the mountainous regions to being, uh, say, a rainfall-dominated regime, has some pretty big consequences, not just for people, but for ecosystems as well. Is declining snowfall just a problem on the west coast of North America? No, it doesn't appear to be. I mean, certainly, as you noted in your introduction, we know that, in general, a warmer world is going to mean that freezing elevations are going to increase in a lot of places. And And if you can imagine kind of climbing up a mountain, you know that as you get higher and higher towards the peak, there's less surface area over which snow could accumulate. So increasing freezing elevations, right, this is the kind of the altitude at which you'd have a phase transition from rainfall to snowfall. Those are going to increase in the future in a lot of locations. The complication here uh, is that we know that it's this kind of subannual mix of temperature variability and precipitation variability that kind of determines whether or not precipitation falls as rain or falls as snow. And further, we know that there are going to be places that benefit, and I use benefit in quotes here, meaning they have the potential for increased snow on multi-decadal timescales because we know that a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. And so places that still remain below freezing in winter times are going to have more moisture in the air, which, if it precipitates, will fall as snow. So, you know, the, the complication here is this subannual mix of temperature variability and precipitation variability. But then there's a whole host of physics that are really quite complicated that determine how long snow stays on the ground for and the extent to which it accumulates. And, and those things are pretty challenging. And so what we really try to do in this study you referenced in, in your introduction, is identify, we have, we have a pretty good sense of what's going to happen with global warming, that snowpacks are going to reduce, but the implications of that snow response, even if it's varied from place to place, say potential increases versus potential decreases, the implications of that response is going to be a function not simply of the supply of snow, but how it's demanded and used. And so what we try to identify is where in the world people are reliant on snow in the present climate, and then examine the potential of a future climate snow and changes in rainfall to supply present demand as well. 
and we identify in the 421 basins that we kind of demarcated in the northern hemisphere, we found that there are about 97 basins in the present climate that really need snow to fulfill human water demand. Now, I'm presuming we're talking about long-term trends here. In these times of extreme weather, could there not still be the odd year where record snow shows up, maybe even this year? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we're already beginning to see that in California. And, you know, and this is one of the things that's, that's really challenging, not just in kind of estimating how snow is going to change in the future, but communicating how it's going to change in the future, and by extent, helping to prepare water managers for what the, the kind of varied forms a world with global warming can take. So we're already seeing that because of a, a phenomenon in the Pacific Ocean, in the tropical Pacific Ocean called El Nino. It's essentially just a mass of warm water that has piled up off the eastern Pacific, eastern tropical Pacific. And that happens on timescales of, say, say, every two to seven years or so. And this year, the temperature anomaly in the eastern Pacific is actually quite high, and that has typically really strong El Nino events have typically been associated with pretty wet California winters. And this year, we're seeing a really strong El Nino event, and, and it's already beginning to have some of its attendant or associated consequences. And, and so there was a really large snowfall event in this year in Nevada earlier. But again, this is kind of a one-year event, and, and, and the California drought has been going on for four years. And we know that the four-year deficit, we would need to have a, a pretty, pretty tremendous year from kind of a snowpack perspective and from a, a kind of a wet California winter perspective to really make up that, that prolonged four-year deficit that we're seeing in California. And with increase, say, you know, and kind of hoping for a, an extremely wet California winter can come with it a whole host of other challenges, such as the kind of need to manage flood risks and landslides and those types of events as well. So the point being that an extremely wet California winter won't make up the deficits that have accumulated over the last four years. Now, it seems to me the snowpack is almost like a reservoir where the dam is really just time. So I'm wondering, it may seem like a stupid question, but are we really getting less snow or is it just melting faster and earlier? Right. Uh, that's a great point. Uh, so there, there's kind of a, a couple of features that are happening, right? So we know with increased warming, according to our best model projections, that the fraction of precipitation that falls as snow in many northern hemisphere regions during winter will decline. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty robust estimate. So more often than not, the temperatures during winter will not be cold enough for snow to fall and instead precipitation that in a past climate formerly fell as snow will, will fall as rain. So that's kind of on net less snow even falling out of the sky. And even and for many places, even in places that might see snowfall increases, and here's a, kind of another complication, in places that might see snowfall increases, precipitation increases in general are also expected, and those snowfall increases may be outpaced by rainfall increases those snowfall increases may be outpaced by rainfall increases. So still, the, the fraction of precipitation falling as snow would decline. We also know that the snow that does accumulate, there will still be the snow that accumulates, but there will be less accumulating and it will melt early in the season and change runoff regimes quite drastically. 
in a lot of different places. And the fact of the matter is, is that if you just look at a, a map of the Northern Hemisphere in the heart of winter, just a huge fraction of Northern Hemisphere landmass is covered by snow. And that kind of intimates that all the complicated ways that ecosystems in particular are really tied to snow to snow's accumulation. You know, for forest ecosystems, for example, there are numerous studies that point to the fact that snow cover provides a layer of insulation on the ground, protecting vulnerable root structures and forest ecosystems, that it also helps kill pests that try to overwinter and cause a lot of the forest diebacks, which is we're seeing um, in the uh, northwestern United States. So as winter is warm, beetles, for example, bark beetles will tend to be able to survive those cold winters. The other feature of it is that, you know, come spring, uh, a lot of riparian and forest ecosystems rely on the fact that snow pulses off a tremendous amount of nutrients in addition to water. And that feature is really critical. And I, I think one that a lot of researchers are beginning, a lot of ecologists are exploring the implications of that. So you're absolutely right that snow, it's, it's, not, it's not just on net a, a change in the amount of snow that accumulates on the ground, but also the timing of the runoff regime and therefore kind of the phenology in a lot of these ecosystems and then just kind of the, the, the cadence of human water demand. I mean, in a lot of these, if you, just, if you were to just look at it, say a, an annual climatology, a monthly climatology of human water demand in the San Joaquin Basin and rainfall, you would see that, you know, human water demand begins to peak around March and April and kind of starts to and, and heads up to a, a peak in, in, in the heart of summer. And that's precisely when precipitation is at its, its lowest in the basin. And so, so there's this mismatch between what's demanded when and what's provided by the atmosphere. And snow is this tremendous kind of natural infrastructure that regulates water availability during those months of atmospheric shortfall. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith talking with scientist Justin Mankin about disappearing snowpacks. Justin, was your group able to calculate how many people in the world depend at least partly on snowpack as a source of agricultural irrigation or drinking water? Yeah, I mean, we provide an estimate, and I'm, I'm happy to give it. In the, in the 97 basins that we identify as being snow-dependent, there are currently about just under one, about 1.9 billion people that live in those basins presently based on 2015 population estimates. And I think it's important to really flush out what I mean by snow dependent. We can't go back in time and say this water molecule, which was transpired by this agricultural crop in this valley, originated a snowpack in this location, you know, in this, in this mountain pass. And this water molecule originated as rainfall and was used in this industrial process. So that's, that's something we can't do. What we can do is we can identify places where snowmelt runoff is a part of the hydrological regime within a river basin. That is that on seasonal scales accumulates snow and then that snow melts and provides water availability to the basin. And at the same time, we can identify those basins where rains in spring and summer are insufficient to fulfill all human water demands. And so what we can then do is kind of give a bulk scale characterization of the fraction of the leftover demand 
after removing the amount that could be supplied by spring and summer rains. This demand needs to be fulfilled by some other source. And there are lots of different ways that humans have devised to ensure water availability during these months of shortfall, typically in spring and summer when, when demands are at their highest. And snow is one of them. Groundwater pumping is another. The building of storage reservoirs is a, is a third. So there, there are a number of strategies in place to ensure water availability. And what we're identifying here is the potential that snow has had in the present climate to supply that demand that's left over. So you can imagine for any one of these basins, there's going to be a constellation of policies, of management practices that are going to ensure water availability during those months of shortfall. And snow is among them. And what we're identifying here is the places where snow has had a unique potential to supply this leftover demand, this demand that would be unmet by spring and summer rains, and therefore where management practices might need to change in a future climate based on the risks we identify of, of decreases. Where are some of the most sensitive bases outside of California that are threatened with declining snow and water supplies? So there are kind of two factors that we're really looking at here. There's changes in snowmelt runoff, which is something that we expect. But at the same time, I noted earlier that a warmer atmosphere is going to hold more moisture. So we expect a lot of places to have increases in rainfall at the same time that we would expect them to have decreases in snowmelt runoff. And so a, a kind of a critical quandary here is the extent to which this increase in rainfall, if people had the means to, to capture and use it productively, to what extent could these increases in rainfall actually offset some of the losses from snowmelt runoff decreases? And so what we tried to do is to take that into, a, into account moving into the future. And the, and the places that are at greatest risk are, are those locations where you expect both decreases in snowmelt runoff and decreases in rainfall runoff. So they're kind of doubly affected over the spring and summer months when demand tends to be highest. And there are non-trivial likelihoods in a lot of basins, including in the American West, the North American West, including on the Iberian Peninsula and the Italian Peninsula and parts of the Middle East and Anatolian Peninsula and Turkey. There are also a number of basins in the Caucasus and, and in Central Asia that do also have some non-trivial likelihoods, nearly, of, of decreases in both rainfall runoff and snowmelt runoff. Just from a snowmelt perspective, there are a large number of basins that have over 90% risk that we identify as having potential increases, and those are similar basins to the ones I just named. So from a 90% risk perspective, Sacramento, and the San Joaquin, the um, Rio Grande, the Atlas Basin in East Africa, Northeast Africa, Iberian Peninsula, parts of the Italian Peninsula and the, around the Aegean Basin. You know, what's actually quite interesting is that the Indus Basin, we identify as having a pretty low risk of decreases in our measure of, of water availability, and that's because the increases in, in rainfall runoff really compensate the decreases in snowmelt runoff. And so it, this kind of highlights another really important point that I intimated at earlier, which is that our measure is capturing this interaction between snowmelt runoff and rainfall runoff and its ability to supply spring and summer human water demand. And so in a future climate, if what was formerly accumulating as snow is now falling as rain, that presents a really different management challenge to people because people need 
to be in a position to, to capture and, and use that water. Otherwise, it will, it will just run off to the ocean. Uh, the great thing about snow is that it kind of releases water concurrent with some of these increases in demand. And so our, our kind of ability to identify, to parse that out for different locations, locations that we identify as, say, having equivocal risks, meaning that there are not decreases in a measure of water availability, will have to be in a position to respond to this transition from a solid precipitation regime, i.e. snowfall, to one that's a, a liquid-dominated one, i.e. rainfall. And that isn't captured by our analysis. Well, climate change is so inconvenient, and it doesn't help that this complex planet is hard for humans to grasp at all. Your science, I think, has contributed to it. We've been talking with Justin Mankin, lead author of the new paper, The Potential for Snow to Supply Human Water Demand in the Present and Future. You can find links for Justin and this paper in my weekly Radio EcoShock blog at ecoshock.info. Justin, thank you so much for finding the time to talk with us. Oh, happy to do it. Thanks, Alex. I'm Alex Smith reporting for Radio EcoShock. Radio EcoShock. Our next guest was an architect who published designs for ecologically sound cities starting in 1968 and for a model eco-city in the Cincinnati area in the 1970s. Like many who offer technical solutions, over the years, Peter Seidel's books began to ask, what is wrong with us? Why can't we adopt obvious answers to serious problems? His 1998 book, for example, was Invisible Walls, Why We Ignore the Damage We Inflict on the Planet and Ourselves. Apparently, Peter Seidel hasn't given up yet. His latest book is titled, There Is Still Time. Peter Seidel, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Well, I'm glad to be with you, Alex. Just the other day, you know, I admit I considered giving up on this radio show. I thought humans are not capable of solving the problems we create. Do you feel that frustration, Peter? Well, I feel it, but we've got to. (laughs) We've got to do it. And I think there are ways to work our way through it. No magic bullets, but there are things we can do. And if we work hard at them and look for, you know, places to, wedges to get into and to push, I think we can accomplish some things. All right. Well, let me tell you the story of a friend of mine, Jack Alpert. He was working at General Motors in the 1960s. He found the major cause of death in car accidents was people being thrown through the windshield. So as an engineer, Jack invented seatbelts, and they worked. But he was horrified when people would not wear them until decades of tickets and fines later. So what is it about human nature that even when we have a solution, we don't act to save our own lives? That is a very good question. That is something we've really got to work on on very hard. I mean, the fact is I observe that what you're saying is, is true. We've got to deal with it, and we've got to find out better reasons of why we don't. Well, I wonder if it isn't because we're absorbed with our own personal lives and and can't get beyond that. I just did a show on uh, a tremendous climate disaster in Indonesia, but it didn't reach as many people as I think it needs to. And it's, I guess, people don't care about Indonesia. So somehow we've got to get global, and that doesn't seem to be in our nature. We evolved to live as hunter-gatherers. 
And this was in a very small society, a very small group. And we cared about, we had to care about what was right around us. If we actually cared about something that was happening way off, a leopard might jump out of a bush and eat us. We had to care about what was right around us. And so we have developed um, caring what's right around us now in the present time, not thinking about the future. If we were thinking about the future, maybe something would happen. So we had to be fast and simple, and that's the way we think. And you also talk about the emotional self. How does that affect our ability to solve these big problems? Well, the emotional self is necessary because one thing, well, it got me to write this book because you care. And because of that, the emotional self does a lot of good things. However, there's another another aspect of it that, that is a real problem to deal with. For instance, every day there are 15,000 children die because of malnutrition. Now, who's moved by that? Hardly anyone. However, if they watch a television program and there's a little cute little dog gets hit by a car, they'll get all wrapped up in that. They might they might even send things to the to the station for the dog. And that way the um, the emotion right now that, that's close to us that they can feel somehow moves them. Whereas the reality of what's happening of fifteen thousand children dying every day doesn't strike them. It is strange, and I wonder, though, how much our inability to solve problems may also be institutional. For example, do you think corporations and capitalism can really prevent a climate catastrophe? There actually is not much incentive the way the corporation is set up. A corporation is set up for what? It's set up to basically to make money for its stockholders. That's its goal. And its stockholders are people who aren't thinking very much about the future. And they want their money now because if it doesn't make money, they're going to sell their stock and move on to buy something else. So a, a, a corporation just isn't set up, isn't organized to protect our future. Yeah. So in a journal called Futures in 2009, you published a piece that puzzled me a little. I didn't have access to read it. It's called, Is It Inevitable That evolution self-destruct. What was that about? Well, it was, it was a scenario. So I, I was asked to write a scenario about the end of civilization, the end of, of, of that. I didn't get the idea to do it. I was asked to do it. It's, it's interesting. That's sort of the beginning of this whole thing which led to this book. So I, I started thinking about it. And when you look into it, I saw that, well, maybe it's even inevitable that we're going to destroy ourselves because we do things, we're driven in a certain direction that do things that work in a way that don't work for our long-term good, but that evolution made us so that we work for our short-term good, what we need now. It did not make us be concerned about our future and in concern about what we want right now here. We can do an awful lot of damage, and, and the conclusion of that is, when you think about it, it could actually lead to the destruction of, of civilization. And you took another route to painting that predicament in your science fiction book called 2045, A Story of Our Future. Could you just give us a brief outlook of what's in that book? Uh, what's in that book? Well, that book is really a story about what it would be like, putting in the form of a story, and that goes back to the emotional thing. 
because when you present a lot of information about the, the future, people aren't as much moved by it. So I thought, well, let's try a novel. It doesn't work as what novel readers want because, first of all, they want to have a conflict on one of the first pages. It didn't have that. <laughs> but it looked at a lot of things that are happening and projected where this was going, where it was headed. You know, get to, you were talking just about corporations. There's more and more amalgamation and merging. And in this book, it ended up with eight corporations, and they all moved on to, to a series of three different islands around the world where these eight corporations had their headquarters. And these people associated each other with each other. They lived on these islands. They kept as much as they could away from, well, other people weren't allowed to come there and see how they lived. Well, anyhow, a series of things like that were things that were happening and projected into the future. Where could this lead? And that was one of the things that it led to, a lot of environmental things, of course, like global warming and, and, um, and spread of all, kind, of all kinds of things. One thing, one thing it had a, a huge factory in uh, Senegal, I think, and it was a huge place where people were starving outside. And they'd go to this factory just because they get fed there. And once they went into this huge building, they never got out, except on a barge which would dump them into the ocean. And there they worked because they got fed. And there they produced cheap things, um, T-shirts, so on, which, which was cheaper than you could get anyplace else because these people were, were, were working for basically nothing. Back to slavery. Well, I'm wondering, you know, we talked about evolution, and one feeble hope, and maybe a scary one, is that giant global computers could help us arrange our society to avoid the worst catastrophes if we can't evolve in time. Maybe we become computer-assisted. What do you think? Well, one trouble, one trouble there would be, I think that the corporations would, would grab hold of the computers and use it for what they want to use it for. And I think that that's what, what would probably happen. Yeah, or some power-mad politicians, a, a dictator or something. Who controls the controllers? Well, there, there's big, there's big tie-up between politicians and, and the business. They work together. So has your understanding of the problem and the solution changed with your new book called There Is Still Time? That's an interesting question. I, I, I think probably not much, but it is looking for solutions. You know, what we can do. You know, it's assuming we're starting where we are right now. We're not starting where we were in 2045. We're starting now to see what, to, to deal with the problems that we have in hand. And it looks at us and it pretty much exposes us for what we are. And I think that a lot of these things, if they become exposed, you know, like in the back of the book, I, I offer some solutions, and one of the solutions is, and the solutions I divide into two types. One, one thing is what humanity ought to do to survive on the planet. But we can see today what, what humanity is doing, and they're not doing very well. <laughs> so the other is, what really committed environmentalists can do, people who really want to do something. And some of the things that they could do is they could bring together important scientists and thinkers, and they could analyze things about, like, greed, you know, what makes people greedy, <laughs> why are they like this, and expose them and publish this. Because we know, you know, that happiness, and this is printed over and over again, is not related to how much money you've got or this or that. You know, and there's a lot of these things to look into and, and publish and make it public. And I think some of these things could help. 
Now, I know some Radio Ecoshock listeners feel deep in their hearts that there is not still time. The infrastructure for a five-degree hotter world is built. We don't show any signs of changing, and major ice sheets at the poles seem committed to melting. What makes you think, Peter Seidel, that there is still time? Well, I don't know that there really is, but there still is time to do something. And what we can do, if we really got effective at it and worked on it, we could mitigate what's going to happen. In other words, would it would it lead to a, t- a total extinction and all of that, or is it something, whatever we do, whatever we do, I think that it's going to be a pretty rough world. It's going to be a lot hotter. There's going to be a lot less food. <laughs> you can say there's going to be a lot more people they keep breeding, but however, it just simply isn't going to be able to support all those people. But there's going to be a lot of people living in terrible misery. And somehow, you know, the human species could pull through. Um, It may not. I don't know. By my calculation, you should be arriving at age 89 this December. Why not just sit back and see what happens? What drives you to keep struggling with ways to save ourselves? That's a good question. (laughs) I think if people care, who of us is going to be alive 100 years from now? Not very many of us. But I think we've got to care about the world 100 years from now. If, if we're moral people, if we're ethical people, if, we, if these things matter to us. Well, is there anything I've missed you'd like to tell our listeners? I think we've got to try. We've got to work. And I do think that the people who are already committed to, to trying to do something have to work even harder. And I think they can. And chapter 7 of my book comes up with suggestions of things that people who really want to do something and will do something if they have some other ideas of what to do, what they can do. On my website, which is petersidelbooks.com, there is a thing where you can add comments. And I welcome comments there. If people have ideas of what we can do, what environmentalists can do, because we we can't expect that the general public is all of a sudden going to turn around and, and do something big. But people who care already can do more if they think that it will be effective. And I'd like to collect ideas on that and put that on my website and put them wherever I can. And in further, in their future editions of the book, to put it in there. Okay, and that's S-E-I-D-E-L. So, obviously, we've been talking with Peter Seidel. His new book doesn't shy away from describing how serious, perhaps even deadly, our current overshoot and overloaded civilization is. But as the title says, Peter thinks there is still time and explains why we're hung up and how to do better. I'll put links to the book in my Radio Ecoshock blog, published at ecoshock.info. Peter, thank you so much for talking with us. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this, something very deep on my heart, as you can see. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Even as he approaches 90, Peter Seidel tries to stimulate action to save the ecosphere and the future. I admire that. At Radio Ecoshock, I know we're in for difficult struggles ahead. But I hope we all can see that the last chapter has not yet been written, if there is a last chapter. The story of natural life on Earth is composed almost entirely of twists and surprises. I remain convinced there is a future, and we should try, and try again, to make it the best possible for all those who come after us. I'm Alex Smith. Be sure and check out the show blog published every Wednesday at ecoshock.info. Thank you so much for listening and caring about your world. (music) 